Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. This is a very special edition of our podcast series we call Freedom Day. This episode is all about the days and weeks leading up to the Paris Accords being signed January 27th, 1973. This event marked the end of hostilities between the United States and North Vietnam and also the beginning of the POW release sequence from Hanoi, culminating in the day of release, Freedom Day, for our Yankee Air Pirate, March 4, 1973. We have uploaded many pictures of the events we discussed during this episode to our Facebook page. Just search for The Yankee Air Pirate within Facebook. After listening to this episode, be sure to check out the page and take a look at these pictures in the Freedom Day album. Also, be sure to like and follow the page so you'll be updated when we upload new pictures. This episode is dedicated to all the incredible people that helped to support the POWs and their families during the Vietnam War. And a special shout out to my godparents, Tom and Pat Foy, and the entire Foy family from Palo Alto, California. You all were there for us every step of the way during this time in our lives. We love all you guys. One last thing. Be sure to rate and give us a written review on your podcast player. It's an easy way to help us spread these stories. So let's get right back to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Dad, how you doing today? I am magnificent. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. It's been too long since we've done one of these. Uh, I've been getting a lot of emails, a lot of text messages, including from your oldest granddaughter uh, the other day that uh, we're getting slack and we needed to get back to it. So we're going to do one today. I am all uh, for it. Um, so before we get started, like always, uh, I do have a couple of uh, lightning round questions for you. Uh, the first question was written in by email from a guy by the name of David Robinson, not the seven foot tall uh, David Robinson that was my classmate at the Naval Academy class of 1987, but David Robinson from Augusta, Georgia. And uh, David writes in, he says he wants to know a little bit about the FJ-4 Fury, uh, your uh, aircraft that you, you said is your favorite aircraft that you've ever flown. Uh, David wants to know, how do you think the Fury would have done against a MiG-17 in combat uh, in a dogfight? Uh, also, he wants to know, how vulnerable do you think it would have been to anti-aircraft fire over in Vietnam and to surface-to-air missiles as well? Well, the MiG-17 would have had the advantage over the FJ-4 Fury, unless I was flying the Fury, of course. <laughs> well, okay. the, part of the reason is that the FJ-4 was a conversion or a modification of the F-86 Sabre. And when you make a 
Air Force airplane into a Navy airplane, you have to add weight so it'll survive uh, carrier landings, otherwise known as crashes. So with the added weight, the advantage sort of went to the F-17. Uh, each one has its own down. The, the MiG-17. Pardon me, the MiG-17. Okay. And uh, the MiG-17 could outturn almost anything, so you never wanted to get into a turning contest. But if you could get it up to high speed and try to get it to roll, it would almost fall apart. And that's why I say if you get a good pilot in there, you can sort of play the edge of the flight envelope and make things work for you. However, looking at the flight envelope with the added weight, the MiG-17 had the advantage over the FJ-4 as much as I hate to admit it. Okay. Now, uh, as far as uh, surviving damage, the uh, FJ-4 was made for air-to-air combat and interception, and it was like a tin can when it came to absorbing uh, anti-aircraft fire or SAM missile explosions close to it. It had shredded like a tin can. So it did not uh, stand up well to battle damage. Okay, and then how about the surface-to-air missiles? If they identified a surface-to-air missile was coming at it, uh, at it how capable would the FJ-4 have been able to uh, outrun and outmaneuver a surface-to-air missile coming at it? Well, it would have been beautiful. If you could see the uh, missile lifting off or see it break through the clouds heading towards you, uh, you could always turn inside of it. You could beat the bloody thing. It's just another airframe and you're dogfighting with it. Okay. All right. And um, another thing that was, has been written about many times, I've gotten a lot of emails about it from a lot of different people and a lot of messages uh, on our Yankee Air Pirate uh, Facebook page. Um, we've talked about this before in the past. Um, people have asked you, uh, do you have any desire to go back to Hanoi? And you answered <laughs> clearly, no, you, you don't want to go. But many of your peers have gone back. Uh, they've gone back to Hanoi. They've gone back to the Wallow prison, um, including uh, very notably, of course, uh, Senator John McCain. He went back. And uh, the question is specifically, have any of these POWs that have gone back to Hanoi after all these years have any of them met up with any of the prison guards or any of the individuals that were responsible for inflicting all the torture on you guys when you're over there? I know of no one uh, personally that ever met with, ran across, or saw anyone who held them captive as a guard or a torturer or an interrogator. I have heard that uh, some guys have run into someone who had allegedly shot them down in air-to-air combat maneuvering. Uh, one person was exposed to uh, a fellow who pretended, at least we thought, was pretending to be the, the head of the prison system, Major Bai, and we think that was a phony. Uh, and why do you think that was a phony? Well, uh, just by the looks of the guy. Uh, I personally spent too much time in front of Bai. So I, I knew him, I knew his face, I knew his bone structure. Uh, I spent most of my time staring right between his eyes, which is one of the ways you can stare them down. And uh, this fellow just didn't have the bone structure, the facial structure of Major Bai. So from the pictures, I, I don't buy that it was Major Bai. Okay, all right, maybe Major Bai 
didn't want to show his face. Well, I I don't blame him. But now, interestingly enough, John McCain supposedly was introduced to someone who saved his life fishing him out of Sword Lake, swam out, picked him up, and brought him ashore again. And, of course, John had no way of all, at all of remembering who was in that lake with him. He had an awful lot of other stuff going on. Okay, and that was the lake, of course, that he, when he was shot down, he came down and, and he landed in the lake. That's correct? right. He, he had a worse day than I, I did. I landed in a tree. He landed right in the lake downtown okay. Hanoi. All right, got you. Okay, well, those are actually the only two lightning round questions I've got for you today before we get into this and talk. But, um, hey, at Mom, I actually have one question. I got one lightning round question for you. Can you come over here for a minute? Yes. All right, come, come on over here and talk into Dad's mic. I, I got just one question for you. Uh, we got a worldwide audience here on, on our podcast, and I want to ask you one question, if you could tell everybody the answer to this question today, okay? Okay. Tell me why I'm your favorite son. <laughs> why I, is it? Because I love you, but you're not my favorite. You're one of my three favorites. <laughs> All right. Well, I tried. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Dad, let's get to it. Um, I gave it my best shot there with Mom. It, it didn't work out. Couldn't pull the wool over. Always fishing. Always fishing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, when the North Vietnamese, uh, what we're going to be doing today is talking about Freedom Day, the, the lead up to March 4th, 1973, which, of course, was a great day for you and our whole family. Um the North Vietnamese consolidated all the POWs into Camp Unity within the Wallow Prison after the Sante Raid in the fall of 1970. Uh, your living conditions certainly improved. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Um, you were all together. You could support each other. You were able to um, create uh, command structures and provide each other a lot of support. Still. You had over two years to go until the end of your end of the war and, and your release in March of 1973. So, during the, those additional two years, did did you ever have any doubt that you would eventually be released? I had doubt that I would even live, let alone be released, uh, for the first week after I was brought into the Wallow Prison, uh, tortured and broken. And if it weren't for meeting Paul Galati and having him turn me around, uh, I, I wouldn't have made it. But from that time on, I never had one moment, one hesitation that you all would get me out of there. The real question was, why was it taking you so long? Yeah, it did take a long time. So when did you first begin to see clear signs uh, that you might be going home soon? That, that two-year period between the time that they moved you all into Camp Unity and you basically had all the rest of 1971 and all of 1972, uh, during that time, did, did you begin to get gradual signs that things are turning 
uh, in your favor and did the treatment gradually become better or did it stay bad and then all of a sudden um, immediately change? How, how did that all come about? Well, the uh, change in treatment actually occurred in 1969. It was a combination of the Sante Raid, uh, the death of Ho Chi Minh, the Politburo's change of policy whereby torture as a mandated rule for everybody captured was done away with. Um, th those were major improvements there. But those two years you're talking about, there was not one glimmer of hope of our release because we knew that the United States government was being played in Paris. Right. We anticipated the war was going to last another 25 years. We knew that as long as there were no bombs forming, falling in North Vietnam, that we would be there and the war would continue. So there was no hope at all. The first glimmer of hope that came through was on the 18th of December in 1972 when Richard Nixon cut the B-52s and the rest of the Air Force and the Navy loose in downtown Hanoi and for 11 days uh, made Christians out of them. So, so that was December in 1972 when, and, and Nixon, did, didn't he order the bombing of strategic targets, including in downtown Hanoi at that time? Actually, uh, Nixon started with in April of 72 through October with linebacker one was the code name for it and started bombing around the district of Hanoi, Haiphong, he resumed the bombing. We had very little knowledge of that within the prison system. The Vietnamese walked away from the negotiating table in uh, November of 1972, and uh, Richard Nixon gave him 72 hours to come back to the table, or he was going to, as the Air Force liked to say, bomb him back to the Stone Age. Uh, they did not come back, and he bombed them back into the Stone Age. So the actual decision to bomb strategic targets in downtown Hanoi took uh, place probably about uh, the actual order. Warning was given 72 hours before the 18th of September, when he cut uh, December, when they cut him loose. Obviously, it had to have been planned, that operation, some 30 days at least earlier, because it involved every aircraft in the Far East at the same time going in over these targets. Okay, and so what impact, what impact do you feel uh, that Nixon's order to bomb the, specifically the targets in downtown Hanoi have uh, on you and, and on, on the Vietnamese? Well, on, on us, uh, me personally, I just speak for myself, it saved my life. Because had he not done that, I'd still be in jail today. Uh, what he did on the, on the Vietnamese, the Communist Party delights in sending other people's children off to die. But when you start hitting them in their breadbasket, in their palaces in downtown Hanoi, and in their sanctuaries, you got their attention. And that's what he did. He realized that the Politburo were the people that were going to go to war or stay away from war, and he got their attention. He scared them. So with, with, all, with all this activity going on and, and a, a lot of air raids going on 
in and over Hanoi and, and the surrounding area, there, there were a lot of uh, additional U.S. pilots shot down during this time. Did you get any contact and get information from these pilots that were newly shot down and, and get to find out what's going on out on the outside and back in the U.S.? We got nothing at all, really, from the, uh, the new kids that were shot down and bought into the system. Uh, the Vietnamese communists uh, are consistent. Uh, they isolate people, and uh, they isolated these new people from each other first, and then as a group, new people were kept separate from the old-timers. The people marched up from South Vietnam were kept separate from us. People bought in from Cambodia prisoners were kept separate. The civilians were kept separate from us. So this idea of separation worked in their favor because we picked up very little knowledge. Okay, so they were successful in that. So um, were they torturing these new pilots uh, that were newly shot down during this time? Because you, you said before that torture as a rule stopped um, for those last two years in prison but uh, there, there was a lot of pilots that were newly shot down during that time also. Did they get tortured when they were first shot down? From my personal knowledge, they tortured people who were uh, senior officers, 05 and above. Electronic warfare officers were tortured routinely. Um, when they stopped torture as a general rule, uh, exceptions were made. You could torture people like Stockdale and Reisner who were exercising leadership if they got caught. You could ta torture people who tried to escape and got recaptured. And you could torture people of tactical interest to the military. So, uh, yes, they were. Some of them were. Most of them were not. Okay. And... So with all this bombing, especially the bombing on downtown Hanoi, uh, unfortunately there's collateral damage and not only strategic targets are hit, but there's gonna be some collateral damage to civilians. I imagine that really scared the civilians that lived in and around downtown Hanoi, uh, including the guards and the family of the guards. So how did all this new, um, air activity that, that we were partaking in, how did that affect the guards? And did they seem uh, scared to you or act any different in, in your memory? Well, a lot of questions in there all wrapped up in one, Patrick. First of all, the uh, Vietnamese estimated that we killed in 11 days 1,500 citizens in downtown Hanoi. And uh, our idiots in the press picked up the Vietnamese propaganda and gave that as a figure. Uh, there was collateral damage, and it's unfortunate, but if you don't want collateral damage, don't start a war. Um, the guards uh, started out when the first day of bombing by bringing us vats of hot coffee and toasted sugared bread at Reveille when we got up in the morning. They smiled at us. They were kind to us. They were nice to us. And consistently through until the day we were released. After that bombing started. As soon as the bombing started, the very next day, the very next morning, 
In came the coffee and the smiles, and they were greasing and oiling their way all across the floor. The political cadre would bring their families in, line them up alongside the walls of our cell underneath the eaves of the overhanging roof, and they would spend the night camped out because they knew that our people knew where the prisons were, and it was the safest place in Hanoi. So uh, our observation of them were that uh, they were not afraid. If you live under a communist government, you are afraid every day of your life. So what's one more fear? Um, they were intimidated, yes. Uh, they were subdued, uh, yes. Were they scared? No, I didn't see them scared at all. It was just one more burden that they had their government laid upon them. Um, but I'll tell you, our, our treatment was never so good as when Richard Nixon was bombing downtown Hanoi. Okay. And tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, a lot of the guards lived in and around downtown Hanoi with their families. So what, a, and a lot of our air raids took place at night. Uh, so it would be more difficult for the Vietnamese to shoot at our aircraft. So what did the Vietnamese often do the the guards, uh, with their families, didn't they bring them into the prison at night to sleep with you guys there or close by you? Well, they bought them within the compound. Thank God they didn't bring them into the cells. There wasn't enough room hardly for us at all. <laughs> but they, yes, they bought them within the prison walls and uh, uh, made themselves as comfortable as possible. So uh, they knew where it was safe and they knew that it wasn't safe out in the city. They look to us for protection. They, the whole world looks to the United States to protect them, no matter what the situation is, and this was no different. Yeah, well, that's a fact. And I, I guess they're, they're not dumb. They, they knew we were going to do the best we could to avoid dropping our bombs on the prison because you guys were in there. So the, the Paris Accords were ultimately signed January 27th in 1973, Leading up to that, did, did you guys there in Hanoi, did you know that those Paris peace talks were going on that were led by Henry Kissinger at the time? Did you know that was ongoing? Oh, we, we uh, tracked, yes, we did. We knew the Paris peace talks were going on from the first time they were proposed. We followed all their stupidity for four years over the size and shape of tables and who was going to be represented and we loved the Vietnamese lady uh, um, from the, re, uh, the communist South Vietnam, Madame Thai Bin. We always imagined her thighs were quite nice. That was a great name to have. So, yeah, we had their names and we had the daily progress reports uh, given on Hanoi Hanna at night. So we knew that the United States was being conned. I think the only people that didn't know they were being conned was the U.S. State Department. Okay. So, well, anyway, so then ultimately the Paris Peace Accords were signed January 27th, 1973, and that included the agreement to uh, end hostilities between the United States and uh, North Vietnam, uh, and it included uh, the provisions of that included the release of all of our prisoners. So I'm curious, after January 27th, how did the Vietnamese come to you 
and announced to you and the other POWs that uh, the peace uh, accords had been signed and you were all going to be released and you were going to be sent home. What can can you uh, describe that for me uh, and tell me what happened? Yeah, one morning we woke up and in fact it was February 2nd and uh, a guard appeared at the door and he had an armful of mimeographed uh, sheets of paper that looked like it was printed on the world's longest roll of toilet paper and there was one sheet for each prisoner and it printed in English were th those parts of the Paris Peace Accords that affected us as prisoners of war. Apparently somebody was smart enough to write into the accord that we would be notified within four days of the signing of the accords of that part that was uh, affecting us so we, we, we would know that we were to be released, the order of release and order of shoot down at the rate of a uh, couple of hundred every two weeks. And there would be no mystery because it, during the Korean War, they played all kinds of games during the release that we don't have time enough to go into here. Okay. So I found out by reading a piece of Vietnamese toilet paper exactly what was going on. So they opened up your cell, they gave you all these documents, and you read it. When you read that, did you believe it to be true, or, or did you think they were messing with you and, and, and just trying to mess with your head? Well, we knew that they were messing with us. We just were trying to figure out how they were messing with us. What we did believe was that they would dump one plane load of sick and crippled people like John McCain and folks like that that were totally messed up physically, uh, dump them back on the states and then leave us locked up for the next 20 years. So you did think that the, at least the first load of released uh, prisoners would go? Oh yeah, that was their method. They'd, they'd always sucker you in with, uh, feed you out a little bit and do some chumming. And okay. So I, I've got some pictures here that you and I have talked about over the last several days um, that were taken after the Paris uh, Peace Accords were signed. One of those pictures is this one right here that I'm showing you of Admiral Jim Stocktail and uh, General Robbie Reisner uh, standing in front of an unlocked cell door in the Wallow Prison. And so did you, did you see that picture when it was taken? Were you there when it was taken? I was obviously had to have been in the prison system, uh, but I did not see that picture taken. They kept us isolated from the uh, 05, 06 pay grades, the senior officers, even through to the very end. They, they feared our uh, association with them. Uh, there were all kinds of cameras once the peace accords were signed uh, taking these pictures. That picture you're looking at uh, was given to me by an anonymous source out of the Defense Intelligence Agent Agency. They recognized that those two guys you're looking at, Robbie Reisner and Jim Stockdale, were the true leaders of the resistance in the prison system. Yeah, and I've got, I've got a lot of really neat pictures here. Uh, that I'm going to be posting in the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page. So anybody that's listening to this, if you want to see pictures uh, associated with this episode, 
go to the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page and go to the album uh, that will be titled uh, Freedom Day. And you're going to see this picture of General Robbie Reisner and Admiral Jim Stockdale and a lot of other really neat pictures uh, that we talk about on this episode today as well. Um, so the, the cell door is open here in this picture. So after they announced that you all are going to be going home, did they keep you in the cells and, and did they keep the doors locked or did they basically just unlock everything and give you free reign to roam around after that? Uh, there's no free reign in any communist country that you live in under any conditions, so no. They'd open the doors maybe for a couple of hours in the morning, a couple of hours in the afternoon, at different times for selected cells. They feared our getting together, getting organized, even like they fear their own people getting together. So uh, at night we were locked in, as is understandable. Obviously, we were locked in our section of the Wallow prison compound, Maison Centrale. Um, but as far as uh, liberty to walk out the door, like you could see Robbie and Cag Stockdale in the door, for a couple of hours in the morning, a couple of hours in the afternoon, yes, the door was open. We could walk out, you know, take a bath, shave, or something like that. And we had that freedom, which wasn't all bad after about, you know, five or six years of being locked in. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So tell me about the food during this time. And and this is a question I ask you a lot during many of the different episodes, because obviously food's a very important thing to, to all of us. Did... Did the food change at any time during during this last two years uh, of imprisonment? Did it? Did you looking back on it now? Was was it a gradual change to get better, or a gradual change to get more food, or did it stay very consistent the entire time? And then at any point, did it immediately change from one extreme to another? For example, when you found out you're going home, did things drastically change then? Look, looking back on it now, can you describe what, what you remember about that? Well, looking back on it is uh, living under a repressive system. If I want to keep you repressed, I, I give you no consistency. So life is filled with change from one hour to another, one day to the next. Uh, looking back on it, any time when you read the history like it looked like the Vietnamese thought they were making progress, they'd start giving us more food to fatten us up. And when that effort fell through, I don't care whether it was 65, 66, or 71, or 72, when that fell through, the food went back to garbage again. So. If they thought you were going home, they'd start to feed you, and then it would crash as soon as they realized that no one was going anywhere. In this case, when the bombing started, not only did they respect us because we showed some strength, but they too, as we did, knew that at least some of us were going home, so they started to fatten us up. So we got canned fish and canned meat and canned milk, uh, double the ration of bread. Uh, all the soup had tons of potatoes in them, all kinds of vegetables that we never saw, plus the pumpkin, kohlrabi, and cabbage. 
So they obviously were fattening us up. I think I was down probably to maybe 110 pounds at one point in time. And when I came across the line, I think I was 140 pounds. So okay. Oh, I, I was a fat pig. So after they announced that you guys were going home, um, and the Paris Peace Accords have been signed, and, and they came and told you on February 2nd that you're all going to be going home, did at that time did the food significantly change, or or did did they just not have the food really to provide to you? much more than they had already been given you. The, they always had enough food. And uh, as I, um, the day the first bomb dropped downtown Hanoi is the day that the food improved and got better and better, and we got fatter and fatter. Okay. And consistently better. Okay. And, and so uh, another thing I want to ask you about is what about mail and care packages and letters from 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 our family back home and, and friends? Um, did you didn't get very much of that at all during most of the time there? Did there come a time where just prior to you leaving and being released, did they come and and give you a whole lot of that? You know, Pat, the, the same day that the, the guard came and passed out the, on the 2nd of February, the information that we were going home, that same very day, they came in with boxes of letters and boxes of books that you people had sent to us. And I got a whole mess of letters, I think, starting back to uh, 1967. Uh, through to about 1972. Okay, and and, and you mentioned the books. Uh, you've described a lot of the different books and magazines that were available. What was the strangest book that that you had the opportunity to take a look at there in the prison cell? Well, uh, we we obviously were not a a democracy. In, in the cell. So the senior ranking officer took control of the books and he issued each one could have a book which we could start to read. These things were treasured because we had nothing but pro uh, communist propaganda. So the book that I was issued was Adele Davis on dieting. Oh boy, that's, that's not too useful in Hanoi, is it? Yeah, I was so desperate to read that I actually read the damn thing. All right. <laughs> That's crazy. Who the hell would send you a dieting book to Hanoi? I don't know. But... Some peacenik on from a college campus. All right. Um, all right, so, so now um, you're notified on March the 4th that you guys are going to be going home, and or excuse me, on Facebook, February the 4th, that you're going to all be going home soon. And on February the 12th, 1973, uh, the first group is released. Uh, so things are happening pretty quick at that point. Uh, but tell, tell me what, what you did, because like you described before, you weren't sure they were going to follow through and release all of you all at that time. So what did you do when that first group was was uh, heading out? Well, the first thing we knew was uh, we uh, our impression that these people were a bunch of rats and were going to screw us over 
was when they made up the manifest, the first flight was supposed to be the sick and injured. And with them, they put the people who had cooperated with them, uh, the people who had betrayed us, went home with that crowd, and they were the healthiest cows in town. So we knew we were being had. Uh, we suspected that was going to be the only flight. I took a, a pack of cigarettes, dumped the cigarettes, and then wrote a letter to, the, to you guys, uh, to the whole family, and basically it was a farewell letter, and said I thought I was going to be here for 20 years, actually because of the mark, torture marks on me, I didn't think they were going to release me at all. And uh, basically said goodbye, uh, stole a, uh, a chunk of plastic, wrapped it up, gave it to one of the guys, I, unfortunately I can't remember his name, he took it and he placed it in his anus because we thought, <laughs> oh, he did. That doesn't sound very attractive. No, we I don't were, think so. Well, we were convinced that they were going to strip search us uh, as we got on the airplane and take everything except our T-shirts and skivvy shorts. That was their mode of operandi, modus operandi. All right. Well, I hope your wife never grabbed that letter and handled it. I, uh, I'm just saying. I, I guarantee you that uh, some poor bastard in the Naval Investigative Service had to clean the whole thing, read it, photograph it, sanitize it before it ever made it to your quarters. At least we counted on the fact that the intelligence community would get it before you ever saw it. All but, right. Maybe uh, take a picture of that thing or something. I don't know. Well, that's just, the way your mother got a lot of the stuff were pictures of it, not the originals. We gave those originals to... Uh, Naval Investigative Service. Okay. Well, all right. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, some of the other things going on over there. A after the time you were told you were going to be released and the Paris Peace Accords had been signed, uh, while you're waiting for release, uh, they continued to play their propaganda games with you, and they, they still wanted photo ops. So they basically put together uh, their version of a USO show, the communist version of a USO show, and brought in an entertainment group, and they, they wanted to perform uh, for the U.S. prisoners there in the camp, and, and, and they unlocked all your doors, and they tried to get you to come out. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about that and what happened? Well, actually, it was a regular, it was a, a Vietnamese communist version of a USO Bob Hope uh, show, which they'd uh, bring up and down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to entertain their own troops. And uh, they bought them in, they had uh, uh, the good-looking girls and uh, the, the music, the sound system, the stage, and they set it all up, and they set up a, a viewing area and opened the cell doors and basically said, you know, you all come. And uh, they struck up the band, and uh, what kind of got, what kind of music were they playing? Was it American well, it, it type was, music or what? It was Vietnamese two string banjo twanging something or other. It sounded sort of like a cat got its butt stuck on the the stove. I mean, I wasn't. I'm not even into our own modern music. You can imagine how how bad that sounded to me. It sounded like a, a screeching cat. Anyway. They were having a wonderful time. The guards thought it was great. I'll give well, our guys did, a lot did, of credit. Did any of you guys go out and watch we it? We didn't go out. Now, like I say, I'll give our guys credit. They didn't even stand up in the window and look out or look out the door. 
Did, did they have TV uh, film crews out there filming what was going on? Well, they were, tra- uh, trying to use this for propaganda? There were, there were film crews out there, absolutely. There, there were film crews in that prison system from the day that uh, release was announced until the day I left. All right. So they, 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 were trying to, they were trying to get more propaganda out of it for sure. Absolutely. So what what about um, the what about the the basketball uh, courts they set up there right before they released you the basketball courts the volleyball nets so on and so forth they again they tried to get people uh, involved in some fun activities for propaganda did did anyone engage in that and play for the cameras well our people naturally refused to take part in it. If they didn't let us play while we were prisoners, then while we were in the in-between state in limbo, we weren't going to get suckered into it. And so they mustered, once again, the people who were never tortured, never threatened, and cooperated with the enemy. And unfortunately, we had over 20 of them. Uh, Went out there, and for the cameras, they shot hoops and fiddled around the uh, volleyball net for pictorial purposes. What did Admiral Stockdale and General Reisner feel about uh, that kind of stuff going on? Well, we, we, that was probably the one time we went against CAG and that we were hooting, hollering, sneering at them and uh, calling them less than attractive names. And that angered uh, CAG Stockdale and Robbie Reisner because of two reasons. One, they didn't want the Vietnamese to see us divided one against the other. And the second part was they had a policy was that if any one of these idiots, even on the tarmac walking out to the C-141, turned around and said, I screwed up, we would never have said a word against them because we all had been had and realized it takes some longer than others to get back to the battery where you can resist. So if you're hooting and howling at them, it's going to make it harder for them to come back to the right side. So they were justifiably angry, but we also were angered too. Yeah, okay. Um, so a, another interesting story that, that I wanted you to tell. So uh, Henry Kiss- Kissinger, of course, is the one that led the U.S. delegation in Paris um, to, to get the, the Paris Peace Accords signed. Um, after that document was signed, there came a time... Uh, during the release sequence, uh, Henry Kissinger came over to Hanoi, and um, the the communist decided that they would, uh, as a, a, a show of goodwill, they wanted to release 20 prisoners to, to leave and go back home with Henry Kissinger uh, when he left. Of course, uh, you all were a bunch of uh, difficult to get along with individuals and the 20 people refused to go. So um, t- uh, tell me about the army major, the U.S. Army major that came into the camp screaming at you guys uh, to get your act squared away. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, you need to put a little bit of this in perspective. The Vietnamese have been releasing people in in groups of three for propaganda purposes during the course of our imprisonment. So uh, 
a Vietnamese-approved release was always equated to propaganda in our minds. We had on paper, in writing, what the release sequence was supposed to be, and we didn't know Henry Kissinger from Adam, and uh, he was breaking his own treaty. He was accepting a release out of sequence, and our leaders said, you go according to the sequence. And so our guys refused to go. So this guy comes in screaming uh, at us uh, at the cell. They had put this group of 20 off in the special cell. They were refusing to go. He came in and he yells, what the hell are you guys doing? You're screwing up the whole thing. Get your asses out of here. Come on, get on with the program. And the senior ranking guy there, Jim Perry, was in fact the lieutenant commander, turns around and he says, our leaders, who are senior to you, said we don't go. We go in the order the treaty says. You're not keeping your own treaty. So here they're lecturing a guy senior to him who's trying to rescue him. Now he's getting kind of confounded. So they finally turn around and agreed that they would go to the senior ranking officer remaining that they could find and get permission to go ashore which, of course, by this time, it turned out to be a colossal farce. We were all watching it, laughing, and the senior, Jim Perry goes over and requests permission to go ashore. And I forget who the lieutenant colonel was that was there, but he gave him permission to go ashore, and they marched off, and they went off on this oddball release with Henry Kissinger. What, was Henry Kissinger there in the camp, or was he waiting at the airfield? Poor Mr. Kissinger didn't have the faintest idea what they, uh, what they were doing to him. They just came to him and said, we give you a present, we give you 20 people. Here's a list of people that were signed up for the next release. Pick 20. So he just circled at random 20 names. He didn't even know what was going on, the poor guy. Okay. Well, so let's talk about a good day. So your day, March 4th, 1973, the day you, you uh, were released. Um, when did they tell you that your day was March 4th, that you were going to go that day? Did they tell you that morning? Did they give you a day or two uh, ahead of time? Did they tell you? How did that happen? Pat, I honestly don't remember that. All I remember is that we were counting down from the last release that was the 14th and counting every two weeks there was supposed to be another release. And so somehow somebody came up with that's the date. we came. They didn't tell us. That we came up on our own, whoever was the senior ranking people and myself. And at that time, I'm just keeping my low profile, keeping my mouth shut. I'm... I, there were marks all over me from my torture. I was convinced they were not going to release me in that condition. They were going to keep me behind. My best defense was to keep a low profile, so I just shut up. So I honestly can't answer that. Okay. Well, what do you remember about the day? So you, it, it was March 4th, 1973. You ended up uh, getting released. So what what do you remember now looking back on that day? What, what happened? Uh, did they come to your cell, tell you to get your stuff and, and, and get ready to go to the airfield? What, what do you remember about it? Well, I remember, all I remember is, uh, as a group, uh, we were simply looking over our shoulder, waiting for the guards to come and haul us back to the, uh, max security, Part of the prison. We figured 
this was the end of it. Uh, we thought it, they were just showboating uh, for the cameras and stuff like that. We didn't really believe we were going to be released. So uh, what I do remember, looking back on it, I was trying to stay out of sight, stay out of their mind. I wanted to be invisible. Uh, I made a decision, unlike some people, I didn't want to bring anything out of uh, there with me except the clothes on my back. That's the way I came in. I didn't want to be posing for propaganda pictures coming out with all kinds of goodies and clothes and, and dogs and crap like that. So I, uh, I decided I'd come out the way I came in. I remember getting rid of the prison striped uniform like it was... Uh, the carrier of leprosy, I remember being relieved to get rid of that. And uh, I remember making a resolution that I'd keep my mouth shut, do what I was told, and not trust anybody. And that was including the Americans that were picking me up. I would trust no one. Okay. And uh, the thing uh, that validated that in my mind was that when I crossed the line after I got through with Colonel Dennett, I got passed on to two escort officers. Everybody else that was released got one escort officer. Why was I getting two? Well, they were concerned about you. They thought you were crazy after Well, that that's episode. what I figured. I, I figured I was on my um, way to Fort Leavenworth. I wasn't on my way to so, um, Palo Alto. Well, I'll tell you what I remember about that. So, Mark, I, I found out uh, I was uh, skiing with the Foy family in Lake Tahoe. And uh, the day before your release, uh, we were skiing at, I uh, believe, Heavenly Valley. And we came back from the slopes back to the cabin and uh, came inside, turned on the television set, and there was a bunch of names scrolling uh, scrolling up the TV and we didn't know what they were and we just all sat there and looked at it and your name came across the TV and it turned out to be the names of all the POWs that were going to be released later that day in Hanoi and um, so that's how I found out that that, that happened and of course I was pretty excited and um, that that's a day I remember, you know, is 30 some odd years ago. I remember like it was yesterday. It was pretty cool stuff. And and so I was uh, ready to watch you on TV later that night. And Tom Foy helped me with that, too. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, so anyway, they came to get you. How how did they how did they take you? Uh, to the airfield? Did, did they put you all into personnel carriers, or what did they do? We marched out the, uh, the Sally Port, uh, the main gate of the prison, and there was a whole mob of Vietnamese people there, and we figured they were going to tear us from limb to limb, and they were just quiet, watching, and not saying, yelling, gesticulating, or anything. It was kind of eerie, and we got into a, what the best description was, a camouflage school bus, an army bus. Okay. And we went from downtown Hanoi uh, out, out across the Dormer Bridge towards the Gialam Airport, their main airport for Hanoi. And just shy of the field, we stopped, and they put us in this, like, World War II barracks-type building. 
and we just looked at each other. In fact, I remember turning to somebody else and turned and said, screwed again. We figured that, that we had gone that far just for the cameras, and they were going to turn around and ship us someplace else. In fact, they gave us a beer, some cookies, put us back on the uh, bus, and drove on to the airport up towards the release line. Okay. So... They get you. They get you to the airfield, and, and now I'm looking at some some more pictures that I'll be also posting on the Yankee Air Pirate Facebook page as well. So I'm I'm looking at uh, a picture of you standing there, and it looks like a, a tan jacket. So that that's the clothing that they gave you to replace your prison garb, I imagine, and they took you to the airfield and that. And you're shaking the hands of a U.S. Air Force Colonel, Colonel James Dennett. And you've told me this story a bunch of times. You're gripping his hand. You won't let him go. Um, what are you saying to him? How'd that conversation go? It was a very brief, very succinct, and on-target conversation. The first thing I said to him was, thank you for coming, sir, which appeared to me to be an obvious thing to say. And then I said to him, get the name and a picture of that son of a bitch on the bullhorn. He is responsible for torturing over 95% of us. It was the rabbit was standing there with a bullhorn in his hand, sort of acting like a master of ceremonies. The colonel, trying to free his hand, says to me, we know, we got him, get out of here, you're screwing up the release. All right, so and they, he push you out of the way and push you over toward the aircraft? The first one to say welcome home was the nurse at the foot of the C-131 ramp, 141 ramp. Okay. Well, for the record, I got another picture here that, that, you, that you provided. Is that also from, from the DIA source that gave you these other pictures? Um, the C-141 picture? Uh, the tail number of your aircraft was 67944. So did you get that picture from the same source, or did that come from an another place? I got that uh, picture from the uh, Military Airlift Command out of Wright-Patterson. Uh, we ended up with one of our ex-convicts ended up being uh, the commanding general of MAC, I think. So anyway, that's where that picture came from years later. Okay. Well, so the, the records that I see from the, the research that we've done, it shows that that aircraft left uh, Hanoi uh, at 1425 hours on uh, March 4th, 1973. And that's, that's 225 for the civilians that are listening. And um, it left from Hanoi, went to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, Arriving at 17:30 hours, which is 5:30, it's about a it's about a two-hour flight. There's a one-hour time difference between Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, and uh, you, you landed uh, Clark Air Force Base um, uh, two hours later. So that must have been a tremendous flight. What what was the mood on the aircraft when when you guys took off? And, and you're climbing out of Hanoi. Um, what are y'all thinking? Well, I, I, I know that you and 
and Don and your shipmates have been in combat. Uh, the mood when we first got on the airplane, buttoned up and started taxiing out was what I call combat fear. Uh, anyone that's been shot at is smart enough to be afraid. And uh, it's a good healthy thing, keeps you alert and stuff like that. We figured that those sons of bitches were going to fire a Sam right up our rear end on the way out. <laughs> Honest to God. And there wasn't a sound. And everybody was puckered, and everybody was watching, and everybody was waiting. And the crew must have been through that with prior releases or something else because they announced as soon as we get over the shoreline, feet wet, and then when we get out of range of the SAMs, they said, out of range, and the airplane just erupted. It was total chaos. Everybody yelling, shouting, saying hello to people that we hadn't seen for years but had talked to, tacked yeah. to, and it was chaos. And I think this is another, that's a picture of that event right here that I'm showing you now, right? That, that's correct. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be posting that picture as well. That's a cool picture. So you, you had the two-hour flight uh, to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, and then uh, you landed at, at Clark, and you got off the aircraft. You, you were um, off the plane. Who, who was the first person that you saw uh, getting off the aircraft at Clark Air Force Base? I was absolutely astounded. I came to the bottom of the ladder getting off the aircraft, and there in front of me was standing the former commanding officer of the USS Ranger that I knew as Captain Noel Geiler, he is now a four-star admiral, commander-in-chief Pacific, and he is returning my salute and shaking my hand and saying, unlike Colonel Dennett, get, get your butt out of here, he's saying, welcome home, and he passes me on to the Philippine ambassador, the American uh, Philippine ambassador. Yeah, and, and that's all, that's pretty cool stuff, and... I, my memory of this, seeing this, so I uh, was still with the Foys when all this was happening. We were still up in Lake Tahoe. It was, a, this all happened about 12 hours after we found out you were coming home and being released. And it was 3.30 in the morning in California at this time. And Tom Foy was struggling with a little tiny black and white TV with rabbit ear antennas to trying to get the picture to come in and come in clear. And he got it right just before they opened up the aircraft door and you got off. So we got to see you come off the plane. We got to see you there um, shaking the Admiral's hand and saluting him and... It was pretty cool stuff, great memories. Again, I was only 11 years old, but I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. And um, so I think this is a good place to stop uh, this episode today. And we'll pick it up again next time and we'll talk a little bit about the things that you did there in the Philippines at Clark Air Force Base before you headed back to the U.S. Uh, so we'll pick pick up uh, right at this spot next time. I'm not going to offer, offer you a bourbon now. I'm going to offer you a refill because you've already been working on that. Would you like a refill? I would love a refill. I, okay. A little bit of Knob Creek is good for the soul. Yes, sir. I, I agree it is. Uh, so thanks for sitting down again today. I appreciate it, and I love you. I love you, and thanks for bringing me home. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. We've got more episodes coming out soon. Please be sure to rate and review our podcast on your podcast player. Remember, that's an easy way to help us spread these stories. And don't forget, anyone can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We try to answer as many questions as we can during the lightning round at the beginning of each episode. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.